Welcome to NoSpinHomilies.com. I invite you to join me to reflect upon the homilies of Father Dan. Father Dan will challenge us to open our heart, mind, and soul to the Word of God. Father Dan will draw upon sacred scripture along with art, literature, and the lives of the saints to help us grow in our love and knowledge of the scripture. In doing so, we can become the living Word of God in this world. Now it is my pleasure to present to you No Spin Homilies. Today, we celebrate Palm Sunday. Now, we read Matthew's version of the Passion of Christ. Now, the Passion is the greatest story in the Bible. We could say the whole Bible is a precursor to Jesus Christ's Passion, Death, and Resurrection. Jesus' Passion is the pinnacle of the whole Bible. Now, when hearing the Passion, we have to resist the principle of familiarity, in which we say to ourselves, Oh, I've heard this story so many times. And in doing so, we tend to overlook the symbolic richness of this story. Well, what I want to do is just highlight a few aspects of the story to help us appreciate how powerful this is for each and every one of us, especially now as we begin Holy Week. Now, the story starts with Jesus and all the other Jews coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, we have to realize the Passover is the premier ritual and celebration for the entire year for the Jewish people. The Passover recalls the Exodus story in which God liberates the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and then delivers them to the promised land. Now, for us to appreciate the Passover, it would be like for us grouping Christmas, Easter, and the 4th of July all together. That's how powerful it is for the Jews. Now, the Jews descend upon Jerusalem because it's where the temple is located. Now, to give you an indication of the magnitude of this event, the population of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus was typically around 3,000 people. But during the week of Passover, Jerusalem would swell to about 150,000 people. And see, that tells you that this is a powerful celebration for the entire Jewish people. And so Jesus, he celebrates the Passover. And in doing so, he institutes essentially our Mass that we celebrate today. Now, the early church fathers saw that the Last Supper as the new Christian Passover. In many ways, the Last Supper was parallel to the Passover of the Jews. Now, the Jewish Passover is a celebration around a sacred meal. It has a specific food prepared in a specific way. At the same time, it recalls the great story of Exodus, in which, through the power of God, Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery to the Promised Land. So, it celebrates the Israelites delivered to the Promised Land by the hand of God. Well, if you look at our Mass, it follows that same tradition, but in a Christian way. Jesus, he institutes our Mass at the time of the Last Supper. It is centered around a sacred meal. The food, likewise, is very specific. Jesus' body and his blood. More to it, as we celebrate Mass, we remember 
the life, the ministry, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's our story, our story of deliverance by the hand of God, deliverance from sin and death to the promised land, in this case, heaven and eternal life. Next in the story, after the celebration of the Last Supper, Jesus leads his apostles into the garden. Now, at first you could say this is very odd. Out of all the places that they would go in all of Jerusalem, they would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Turn to St. Augustine. He interprets this as what began in the garden ends in the garden. Well, what began in the garden? Sin and the fall of grace with Adam and Eve. But before that, Adam and Eve were or enjoyed fellowship or friendship with God. It said Adam and Eve walked with God in fellowship in the cool evening of the garden. Well, that's what God intended from the very beginning of time. And yet, through the fall of grace, Adam and Eve succumb to temptation, and they usher in sin into this world. And so we see the effects of sin throughout the Old Testament. Now, where does that momentum of sin end? Well, back in the garden again, with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is so true of his passion, death, and resurrection. That momentum of sin that Adam and Eve has started is now reversed by Jesus' passion and death. And so it is very intentional for Jesus to go into the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus will restore us to a right relationship with the Father, the way it was before the fall of grace, which was what God meant from all of time and space. Next in the story, the soldiers come out to arrest Jesus Christ, and the apostles, they all run. They cut tail and they abandon Jesus. Has this ever happened to us? We know the right thing to do, and yet we cannot summon the courage to do that right thing. Instead, maybe we run away from it. Colonel John Henry Newman once said, One thing that is required for evil to thrive is for a good person to do nothing. Now, that's a pretty powerful statement when you think about that. I'll say that again. One thing that is required for evil to thrive is for a good person to do nothing. Now, we all have to battle evil in our life. Sometimes it's hard. That's why it's so important to support one another who are undergoing that same battle or that struggle themselves. We must encourage one another, especially when we feel frustrated or all alone. Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. If you go back to the story of the first evangelization of the apostles, Jesus sends the apostles on mission. How does he send them out? Two by two. Why? So when they get frustrated, they can encourage one another. When they get down, they can motivate each other. If Jesus sent them out one by one, after a while, they would become frustrated, confused, and then eventually succumb to evil, and they would give up. But with two people, they would be able to support each other. And see, we must do the same. This is why it is so important for us to join and be part of a parish, a faith community. If we know someone is struggling, whatever the issue may be, we prayerfully, as well as pastorally, support one another so they don't give up in the spiritual life. 
Now, next in the story, we see Peter's betrayal of Jesus Christ. Now, Judas and Peter, they both betray Jesus. Peter does it three times. And yet, what's the difference between the two betrayals? Well, it's very obvious. It's a telltale sign is how the betrayals end. That is, Peter seeks forgiveness. There's that beautiful story on the shore of the Sea of Galilee after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus appears to the apostles as they're fishing in the Sea of Galilee. They see him on the shore. Arriving on the shore, the apostles see that Jesus has prepared a breakfast for them. And then after breakfast, Jesus takes Peter aside. And then there's that grace-filled exchange between Peter and Jesus. And Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, Then feed my sheep. Well, that conversation takes place three times. And three times it takes place in order to forgive the three times Peter denied knowing Jesus. Now compare and contrast Judas. After having betrayed Jesus, he doesn't seek God's forgiveness. Instead, he's convinced he's beyond God's forgiveness, and he hangs himself. That's really the difference between the two betrayals. Now, what does this mean for us? We always have to be aware of how overwhelming God's mercy and forgiveness is for each and every one of us. That's why we celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday As the second Sunday, right after Easter, we celebrate how overwhelming God's mercy and forgiveness is for each and every one of us. And all we have to do is, like Peter, ask. Ask for God's mercy, and Jesus will bestow it upon us in an overwhelming way. Now, fast forward to the very end of the story. Jesus is dying on the cross, and right before he dies, he says what? Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, for so many people, they fall into that false notion that Jesus has believed that God the Father has abandoned him. Well, that is so far from the truth. Instead, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been together, even before time and space was even created or began nor will they ever be separated. We can see that throughout the Bible. We can see that in Jesus' baptism, the Holy Trinity reveals itself. At the Transfiguration, again, we see the Holy Trinity. And so God the Father and Son are never separated. Now, what is Jesus really saying here? When he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is praying Psalm 22. If you look at Psalm 22, The very first verse, it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the prayer of the righteous sufferer. The righteous sufferer, although innocent, is mocked by evil and suffers for sinners, and then prays that God will deliver him from his suffering. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. In his passion and death, Jesus essentially embodies Psalm 22. My friends, today we begin Holy Week, the holiest of all weeks of our entire liturgical year. This is a very special time for us as Catholics. Strongly encourage you, take some time this week, 
carve out a niche of time each and every day of, of this week of Holy Week and allow yourself to spend some quiet time with Jesus Christ. I always tell people, in the spiritual life, it's good to be selfish. It's good for you to be selfish and be alone with Christ, now more than ever. And allow Jesus Christ to invite you into his passion, death, and resurrection. And in doing so, you'll feel the depth of God's love and mercy for each and every one of us. And may the grace and the peace of Jesus Christ rest upon you always.